0: morning again. I've had quite a week at our home. Uh, my second oldest daughter and her family came up from Houston to visit, and um, some of you remember through prayer requests that we sent out that uh, she had preemie twins back on November 5th, and they're doing great. Uh, they turn nine months tomorrow, and we're so excited to see them up here, which caused my other daughters to uh, come home. And we've been really uh, having a great time as a family, just enjoying that, and uh, and uh, just kind of having great fellowship. Um, for that reason, uh, because I need the help, we're going to stand up and ask God to bless our time together today. So, if you don't mind standing and praying with me, we're going to declare who we are in Jesus Christ, as it says in the Word. So, just repeat after me: By the power and the, power. And the blood. And the blood. Of the, Lord Jesus of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command, end, I, do suggest, I do not suggest, but I command, end, that, any evil, that any and all evil, get your thumbs ready, get out of here. Out of here. A lot of you guys are like, I'm not going to do that. That's fine. <laughs> For my, my mind is a quiet, place. quiet place. It's a place. It's a holy place where only Jesus and I can talk. And my, and my body is the temple, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, we come to you today and we just ask for us to be united as one. Father, may I be clear, may I be direct in what the message is that you've laid on my heart for this morning. May you help all of us, Father, to put aside those things that crowd into our hearts, uh, that distract us from what you may have to say to us. We just commit this time together and uh, asking that you bring us together in unity and love. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. So we're in Amos chapter 8 this morning. We've been walking through some of the prophets. We started in Habakkuk, and now we're in Amos. And Amos is a little bit longer book, so this is about our third or fourth sermon in this uh, particular prophecy. And uh, really what we're talking about today is decisions. 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 Uh, I'm going to ask you uh, two questions this morning. I want you to think through these. The first question I have for you is what decision that you've made has had the greatest impact on your life? What decision that you have made has made the greatest impact on your life? And secondly, out of all the decisions that you've made, what has been the one that has led to the most despairing? fearful moment of your life. It was just a flat wrong decision. Now, I've made a lot of decisions in my life. Uh, I've made decisions that have been good and bad. Uh, Some of you know my life story. I didn't come to know Christ until uh, later in high school. And so I made a whole series of bad decisions growing up. And typically, uh, the ones that come to my mind the clearest are the decisions where I lost my temper. I had a horrible temper problem. I grew up a very angry person. A lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to go into those now, but I found myself in a lot of fights. I had a guy come up after the last service, and he said, man, you're the last guy I would ever think of as having a lot of fights. I guess the the, the giant marshmallow guy doesn't impress him too much. (laughs) But it wasn't that I was ready for fights. Hear me. It was the fact that I lost my temper, that fury, that anger, that redness would just obliterate facts like that guy is a lot bigger than I am or there are three of them there's one of me. It didn't matter. I was just angry. My sophomore year in high school, I was expelled twice for fighting. Didn't go around looking for fights. I didn't have a desire to be in fights. It's just they seem to have found me. And people kept telling me that, well, you have a bad temper, as if I was a victim of temperitis or something like that. But the truth was I made bad decisions. I kept deciding that when I felt that onrush of anger that I was going to respond by hitting someone or jumping on their back or doing all these crazy things. And in my neighborhood uh, with us, we kind of fought, and you probably did too if you're a guy, uh, I'm going to do maximum amount of damage to you before you can do it to me. You know, throwing of bricks. Uh, my friend blew up the side of my face with a 80 You know, I, I still don't have full hearing in this ear. He got a brick upside the head for his troubles. Um, you know, my mom said that she had a permanent seat at our school with her name on it in the principal's office so that she got called up there so often to see what was going on with me. And then that day came when I accepted Christ as my savior. My brother came home and told me the story of the gospel and I was so excited. And we prayed that night to receive Christ, best decision I ever made. I felt that night like this weight of anger flushed off of me, rolled off of me, and that I was finally free from it. But it wasn't quite the case. I still had other opportunities as I grew in Christ to learn how to make better decisions. Well, my junior year in high school, we had a man come to town, John Ankerberg, and uh, at the invitation of my pastor, and he told us that we should be, as young people, willing to take our Bibles to school and be a witness for Christ, be a very public witness for Christ. And so I started doing that. And to be honest, I don't think most of the kids who were in school who had grown up with me uh, that went to Central and Omaha had any idea what was going on in my life. Uh, I tried to tell them, but uh, they didn't know what to do with me. They just knew I was different. In fact, some of them began to call me Father Foster. I lived in a predominantly Roman Catholic neighborhood, and I was Father Foster because I carried my Bible. And if I got an opportunity, if my brother got an opportunity at Omaha South, the other members of our youth group had opportunities, we would share what had happened, what had transformed us. But I had still brought a lot of that old life with me, didn't I, into my new life? And God had to deal with that. I remember my senior year, I was in weightlifting class. And part of what we were doing was speed jump roping, you know, and you'd go as fast as you could for I don't know how many minutes, and the coach would blow the whistle, you'd drop the rope, you'd stand to the side, the next guy would come in, pick up the rope, right? Well, uh, there's this guy named Max, big guy, football player, Max, uh, tough as nails. And he decided that today I would be a good guy for him to demonstrate his power on someone else. And so at the end of class, he came up to me and said, I didn't, didn't like what you said to me. He, he accused me of actually saying something really rotten about him as I dropped my rope. In fact, all I was trying to do was breathe. I had no idea who was going to take the rope, but that was his impression. And in addition, Max brought his cousin, Ron, with him. And Ron was even bigger than Max. And I knew what was probably going to happen. I've been in this scenario before. Sometimes I was the one on the other side of this trying to get someone's goat. But I just stood there in silence. And Ron, his cousin, said, well, if he said that, he deserves what he... And the next thing I know, Max has just hauled off and bam, right in my sternum. Just knocked the wind out of me. And instantly I saw that same familiar redness in my eye. I was so angry. And I I was ready to just go after it. But then I remembered, I'm not the same guy anymore. I'd made a decision a couple of years before, and it didn't allow me, if I was obedient to God, to respond in the same way. So I just stood there. And I thought about all those people that knew I carried my Bible, all those people that I had talked to about Christ. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't do the old Dave Foster thing. So, for whatever reason, they just let off of it, called me some names, walked away. We got to the locker room to change for the next hour. The coach came up and said, hey, I heard what happened. And he talked to Max, not to me. And Max said, well, Foster called me this. And I remember the coach looking at me and saying, if he called you that, then he deserves what he got. And I'm thinking, this is injustice. This is not right. And I knew he didn't want to talk to me because He might have to discipline one of his best football players and i thought about that a long time but i still remember thinking god as i left school that day thank you i made a decision to follow you it was the right decision decisions have consequences they don't always go the way we want them to go but they have consequences god's people make huge decisions well let's let's talk a little bit more about some big decisions in our lives I looked up some big decisions that people make, and I just listed them here for us. These top five are really huge decisions. So let's take a look. We decide whom we're going to marry. That can have huge implications for the rest of your life, right? It's not just for a day or a year. We're hoping it's for decades. We're hoping it's till the day that the Lord takes you home. Who am I going to marry? And who it is that you marry affects what your home is going to be like and look like and... How you're going to live and at what socioeconomic level and so many things go into that. The decision to major in what in college, whatever that is, Um, it's going to have a tremendous impact on you. Now some people major in this and they never have a job in that area, but for some of us that's what determines who we're going to be. The decision to have children. Uh, Iona and I do a lot of premarital counseling. We hear couples from all over Uh, the grid on that. Some people don't want to have any children. You know, this is too rotten of a world. I don't want to bring kids into it. Others just can't wait to have kids. Oh, it's what they're getting married for. Uh, When you have children, oh my goodness, that brings in a whole bunch of other decisions, doesn't it? James Dobson says like the most important decision that parents make is when do we send our kids to school? Age five, age six, and so forth. And that's just the small decisions it seems like to us. And if you're a parent, you know how many nights that you spend in prayer for your children and how many conversations you have late at night, often with high schoolers and college kids that are your own, (laughs) and you're trying to help them with decisions they're making. Fourth decision is to ask Jesus to be your Savior. I made that decision. 1974, best decision I ever made. But there are those who come to that point, and instead of going forward, they veer to the right or they veer to the left. And with that decision, if you make the right one, comes many more opportunities to make decisions with God. The decision to pursue a career in this field or that field, is it the right field? Am I doing the right thing? And then there are some other decisions that all of us don't have to make these, but some do. The decision to get a divorce uh, rocks their world as it should. The decision to adopt. Man, a lot of people are adopting today, right? international adoptions, domestic adoptions, so forth, the decision to end life support for a loved one. I remember when uh, my mom came to live with us, she had Alzheimer's, we knew this was probably going to happen. Her great-grandfather, excuse me, her grandfather had Alzheimer's, her dad did, she did. There's only Dean and I. I'm thinking I hope my brother's the one who gets that, (laughs) but maybe not. I don't remember. Anyway. But when she came, you know, uh, we talk a lot about how do you want to end life, and she had written out exactly what she wanted to do, and we talked about this. Uh, in fact, we had gone to a movie in the 90s, I think it was, uh, Amadeus. You ever seen that on the life of Wolf- Wolfgang uh, Amadeus Mozart? Really a good movie, and uh, at the end of it, because he's so poor, he wasn't well thought of by his contemporaries, they uh, bury him by wrapping his body in a sheet, putting it in a wood casket and then they take him out of town in a carriage to a mass grave because he can't afford a, a mausoleum or a tombstone and they pick him up and they just tilt the casket. And there's a little trap door and the body slides right out of it. And my mom leans over to me in the theater and she goes, that's what I want you to do. <laughs> I don't want you to spend a whole bunch of money on all that stuff. I said, mom, yeah, right. Yeah, we're going to just slide you out a trapdoor. I'll ask the undertaker, you know, I'll say, hey, what's your price on trapdoor coffins? Do you you know? But then she also told us as she realized that things were getting dark before she went totally into her dementia, you know, she said to Iona and I, I just want you to wheel me in, drop me off, don't ever come back to visit me. I think she had memories of what that was like for her visiting her parents. And again, Iona and I assured her that would not be our decision. The decision how to end life. The decision to accept what God has dealt you in life. Some of us live a whole life of frustration. We're bitter. We're angry because we don't think that we got the best shake. And yet God's fingerprints are so clearly in our lives. He doesn't want you to be a wealthy millionaire. He doesn't want you to be the best at whatever it is that you do. He's got other things planned for you. He's shaking up your world. Do you decide to accept that or not? And then the most important decision, number 10, on which college football team to root for. <laughs> and I'm just going to tell you: between God and me and you, you many of you made a mistake. <laughs> but that's something you'll have to repent of. So anyway. So. As we look at Amos chapter 8 this morning, we're looking at decisions. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what led the Israelites to making the decision as rulers, as priests, as businessmen, and as families to reject the God of Israel, Jehovah God? Because that's what they're doing. They're rejecting their God. And the obvious answer is, They just didn't want to do it anymore. They didn't want to live that lifestyle. They had been given everything that you can dream of. They had moved into the Canaanite land. They had come to places where they had not planted the the fields, they had not built the houses, and yet they had them. Despite God's repeated efforts to get their attention and tell them, you are going the wrong direction. I'm sending these prophets. I'm sending Amos to you. I'm going to have him tell you what I think about how you're living. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, I'm going to send some natural disasters, earthquakes. And we have a reference to an earthquake right here in this book that God sent to his people. If that doesn't get your attention, I'm going to send military defeats. Countries that are smaller than yours, that are less powerful than yours, are going to have tremendous victories over you because you have been disobedient. You made wrong decisions. And yet Israel repeatedly stays stubborn and they refuse to make right decisions. To make matters worse, they decided to pursue these gods, these new gods, Baal and Asherah, with all of the zealousness and stubbornness that they used to reject Jehovah. It wasn't just that they wanted to live in a theological vacuum where they had no gods. They weren't atheists. Worse than that, they pursued the gods of the people that had been defeated when God sent Joshua and the conquering armies into the new land. For some reason, these were attractive to them. And I'll tell you why they were attractive. Because through them, they were allowed to do all the things, especially sexually, that they were not allowed to do by Jehovah God. They were allowed to do all the things financially that they weren't allowed to do by Jehovah God. And the reason they could do this with such impunity was because they had the belief, and it was true, that God had made them his chosen people. You remember the story. God calls Abram, living in the land of Ur, and he says, follow me. And Abram says, yes, I will do that. And he leads them into the promised land, into Canaan. And through a series of ups and downs and so forth, the people of the Hebrews are established as as the people of God. And God says, I want to be your God. You will be my people, right? You know, we kind of make that same covenant with our children. I'm going to be your father. We hope their response will be great. I'll be your child. Sometimes when they hit 16 to 18, we, that covenant gets a little less firm. But that's the idea. God says, I want to do this. Remember, he put Abram to sleep when the Abrahamic covenant happens in Genesis 12 in the smoking furnace, which represents God is going down between the the different kinds of animals that have been cut in half and laid aside as altar meat. And he goes that while Abraham is off to the side asleep because God knows he can't live to his end of the bargain. He's not a covenant keeper. I was reading in Psalms this week, and it says, the psalmist writes, I will proclaim your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. That is the ideal for what God wanted for his people and yet they reject all of it. Now, they could be so cocky. They could be so vain because they knew they had Solomon's temple right there in Jerusalem. They had Jeroboam's altar at Bethel in the northern kingdom. They enjoyed riches and harvests and fertility, all signs in ancient Near East cultures of God's blessing. And all they had to do was worship their God. But time after time after time, they reject God. Let's look at Amos chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 4 because uh, Pastor Tom covered up to verse 3 earlier. It's written in this part of the prophecy. And by the way, the words that he uses here in his judgment of his people are almost identical to the ones he uses in chapter 2 of his indictment of Israel in that part of the scriptures. He says this, hear this you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? In other words, we don't care about your sanctified days and years and feasts. We just want them over. They're getting in the way of us making a dime. We want to make profit. Let's get away away from the religious uh, form, formations that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. They want to cheat people. And that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. God's indictment to Israel is the same that it's been. Remember, Amos is not like one continuous book that we're reading where he starts in chapter one, going through chapter nine, and we're following a narrative. These are various sermons or prophecies that Amos is speaking to the ruling court of Israel, the northern ten tribes and of judgment. And someone came along after Amos and put these together so that we have a series of his sermons. And the sermon in chapter 8, going into chapter 9, is almost identical to his indictment from chapter 2. Right? And he is angry because they are doing exactly what the Mosaic law forbid them to do as his people. He said, we have a covenant. I am your God. You are my people. And by the way, what that means, this is how you must live. You live this way. You take care of those who are poor. You do not take advantage of the needy. You see to it those who have been distressed by life. No one takes advantage by charging too much interest. No one deals deceitfully with another we are going to reflect the God that we say that we worship. He is holy, he is just, he is love, he is gentle. So shall you be as my people. But then he lays this out that we just read. You who trample on the needy, bring the poor of the land to an end. And I like it better in the New American Standard where it says to do away with the poor of the land and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy and sell people for nothing and sell worthless parts of wheat as if it was the best. God has had it. He's been patient. He's been continuously leading them to points of forgiveness. This has been going on since Moses led the children out of Egypt. If you want to go back to the book of Genesis or Exodus chapter 1, they've been in slavery for 400 years. Well, not slavery, but they've been living in Egypt for 400 years. And God is going to lead them away. And he does so for them. And yet, almost as soon as they're out of that predicament, almost as soon as the Red Sea closes back upon itself, the children begin to grumble. They begin to complain. Remember, we don't have enough food. Well, here's some manna. What is it? Right? It's bread. Well, we don't have any meat. Well, we're going to send some quails. So much quail that you're not going to be able to handle it. Despite all that, Korah decides to lead a rebellion. And the last thing he saw was the ground closing above his head over him and his followers. You see, there's discipline. That's what we're talking about here. God is disciplining his people. And we know as parents, if you're a parent here today, that there's different levels of discipline. There's discipline 1.0. That's where you sit down with a child, a young child, who doesn't really know better, and you just do gentle correction, right? Well, You know, this is the first time that we've had a chance to talk about this. Let me just uh, say, we don't do that in this family. Oh, okay, Daddy. Thank you. Right. Discipline 2.0. We've talked about this, right? You and I have had an understanding. I thought we weren't going to do this anymore. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. My bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Discipline 3.0. All right. You know, we've gone far enough on this. I own! Bring mom in, you know, she'll take care of them. Yeah, I was lucky. I had three daughters. And, you know, being raised in a family of guys, um, my mom had five brothers. And uh, discipline was just, there was no question that you were being disciplined. I'm not sure we went through 1.0 to whatever. We usually went right to, like, seven. And that was probably because we weren't real subtle. But in my family... You know, I, I just, I always remember seeing at the dinner table one night, and I don't remember what Hannah did, she, I think she was only five or six, but she had done something worthy of discipline. And I just, I, I, I went into my discipline void, I was like, Hannah, and she looked at me and I looked at her, I probably wasn't smiling, and her whole face just dissolved into tears. And I'm thinking, whoa, this is power. <laughs> Where did that come from? I can't do the things that I thought I would be doing as a dad with these girls. They're too gentle. They're too obedient. We really didn't have to do a whole lot as far as correction. God wishes Israel and his people would be that way. But instead, they were defiant. They were defiant. So when God gets to 10, and that's where he's at in the book of Amos. We've, we're done with the discipline cycle, right? Right? We're done with the discipline cycle. Ten is utter discipline. God has had enough. Let's keep on reading. Amos, uh, we'll go to verse seven. The Lord has sworn. This is a oath by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any. Of their deeds now God is using an absolute word sometimes the marriage council we tell couples don't do this don't say never ever don't say every time you because there's no room for negotiation there's no room to give the person the dignity to respond in a way that saves them some pride but God isn't worried about that here he's done that he's been down that road and he's surely I will never forget any of these things that they've done. Now, this is the same God. When you look in the book of Psalms and he says, I will separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west, right? I will make you pure as snow. This is a God of forgiveness. Romans chapter 2 says, because of his kindness, he leads you to repentance. This is a side of God that none of us hope that we ever see. Israel is there. Verse 8. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? Is that what we should have happen here? Verse 9, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts, days of worship, days of worship, into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. You're going to be poor. You can't even feed or dress yourself. If you're bald here this morning, you're going to have to check and see what God is doing in your life. Uh, I will make it like the morning for an only son. You're going to be grieving in the end of life, a bitter day. Wow. God is angry. Their decision, we're going to stop worshiping God. We're going to pursue these other gods that allow greater latitude in our moral lives so that we can experience pleasure and live like the people around us. They seem to be having a great time. Why can't we just have a little bit of God and a lot of this, right? Why do we have to live such exacting lives, such strong lives? And God is saying, it's over. It's done. And what he has waiting for them is the nation of Assyria. He is going to bring upon them destruction in the form of a conquering nation, and we know this from history, that is so devastating that the nation of Israel, those ten northern tribes, are not going to be heard from again corporately. It is over. What makes the Assyrians so tough? Well, we know a lot about them. Uh, I just got some slides we put together to kind of give you an illustration. Uh, What they knew, even at the time of Amos, these people knew what Assyria was all about. And I'm sure that Amos was not shy in saying, God is sending the Assyrians. That would petrify them. That would put their faces white with fear. Because here's the truth about these Assyrians. They're an enemy that lived at war. I have some pictures in these slides of old ancient Assyrian uh, art renderings of how they lived life. What we do know is that every Assyrian man from the poorest to the richest was required to serve in the army. This was the first nation to make mandatory uh, military service a law for every male citizen. And what this meant is they served in three-year rotations. In the first year, they had to go out. They built roads, bridges, they served the army any way that they could in the empire. The second year they had to be in the army, they'd go out and actually wage war. Third year they were allowed to go home and be with their families, and then it would start all over again the next year. The only way out of this cycle was to die, to get sick, to have some part of your body hacked off that made you a bad soldier, and that was it. You were just in that cycle. That was the Assyrian nation. The results was one of the strongest armies in world history when they came to your town the men at the gates were both hardened and they were vicious they were brutal and there were a lot of them now some of the details i'm not going to go into this morning because we don't have sunday school and i don't want if there are kids in here to go home with nightmares nor for you to come up and yell at me after the service so i'm just going to kind of touch on these Uh, there was psychological terror We have a lot of tablets that show us what the Assyrians did to those that they captured. I'll just say this. It involved knives staying alive for long periods of time, screaming for death. And if you think that sounds harsh, I'll I'll spend some time telling you about what they really did. Uh, They had a chance to surrender. You actually could surrender to this army. You could just say, we give. You guys are way more powerful than us, but very few people did that. But if you did, they would uh, make you into slaves and you would live the rest of your life serving them. But you could surrender. Israel didn't do that. In their pride, they believed, well, we are God's people for Pete's sake. We have his blessing. He wouldn't put us in this kind of situation. Well, Amos just said, don't forget what Amos said. They refused to surrender. And for those who didn't surrender, the consequences were harsh. They used advanced siege weapons. Uh, big rock, like we see in the movies, you know, as a swinging lumber with a metal or iron head on it that could break through the strongest gates. They invented the battering ram, and no nation of their day could withstand it. Uh, very few nations actually went to war with Assyria and came out of the other side. They obliterated cities and nations that they, that they attacked uh, we do know that when the Assyrian king Samacherib invaded Babylon, he wiped it off the map. All he left behind was this message that he wrote, or at least described it. The cities and its houses, from its foundations to its tops, I destroyed. I devastated. I burned with fire. Through the midst of that city, I dug canals. I flooded its sites with water, and the very foundation thereof I destroyed. I made its destruction more complete than that by a flood, that in those days to come of that city and its temples and gods might not be remembered, I completely blotted it out. And that's exactly what they would do to Israel. They blotted it out. There were torture of the survivors. If you actually went through this military takeover of your city, state, or nation, you did not want to be captured alive. People would flee quickly. As fast as they could, the Assyrians made it a point to pursue everyone that they knew of that was part of that nation, no matter what expenditure of men, uh, weaponry, or uh, time and effort was required, and they would hunt you down. Just because they destroyed your city a year ago, two years ago, doesn't mean you were off the hook. You either had to live a life completely in isolation or certainly in a way that you were not identified by the person that you had once been. Uh, One Assyrian king recorded some of the things that he did to the people that he captured. And again, it's too gruesome to read here this morning. You would go, if you did survive, and maybe you surrendered, you'd go into a life of slavery. Assyrian art shows people that were chained to giant rocks, boulders, if you will, and they were forced to drag those around as they did chores because slaves was almost in their minds the worst part of life. They would rather die than to go through that kind of life. And for women and children, it was even worse. The same thing that happens to women in most wars happened in spades here. It was a tough, tough road to go. There was a resettlement policy. If they conquered you, you would be immediately uprooted and taken and put it into another part of their empire. So an, an Israeli... An Amorite, a Phoenician, you could all be in the same region, but now you were a new people. You were Assyrians, sort of. And you were required to do the jobs they gave you if you lived through all that. And they were not high-paying jobs or good jobs. But you would never again be together as a corporate people. Now, this is different when the southern two tribes get taken over by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. When they're sent into exile like Daniel and his friends, they're allowed to more or less be in the same enclave, you know, together. They can live together. Uh, they eventually return together to rebuild the temple, right, and the wall. But in Assyria, they didn't do that. You never again would be an Israelite. If the Assyrians were coming here to Iowa City and you went into slavery, you would never be able to identify again as a Hawkeye or anything to do with Iowa. You'd be living next door with people from Canada, from people with Texas, and so forth, and you would be encouraged in the most harsh ways to find a new identity. New wife, possibly children, who knows. There was a brutal code of law. So now you're living in this new settlement, and if to live there, you've discovered that there's no more God, there are no more priests, settled disputes. There's no way that these people are going to treat you the way that you were treated under Jehovah God. There was no gentleness, there was no kindness. The harshness of the penalty for breaking the laws, the rules of Assyrian uh, law code were, were graphic. There were parts of our faces, our arms, our feet, and so forth that would go missing. They conducted military campaigns brutally, and they lived brutally. I saw one guy that wrote in there and said, if you're a Trekkie, you would think of that. These are Klingons. It's just a military community. They're brutal, right? Lastly, the stress, the post-traumatic stress that comes from being conquered by these guys was amazing because we have writings from this time period where people who had been conquered are seen walking the streets uh, like they've lost their minds. They don't know what's going on. They don't respond to direction. They're just lost. God set this nation upon his people? Are you kidding me? Is that possible? Is this the God that we read about? Ah, it can't be. It can't be. Well, certainly God's grown up since the Old Testament, right? He wouldn't still do that today. Have you read the book of Revelation? When God comes back this time, it's going to be in judgment. See, there's an aspect of God we don't teach anymore. It's, it's not polite. It's not good for polite society. We want to talk about roses and creation and so forth, but there's judgment, even on his people. Let's continue reading chapter 8. And as bad as the Assyrians are, it gets worse. Verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, he's going to bring in some lines that are uh, tributes to foreign gods that they lived amongst as a way of mocking them. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, but they shall fall, and they're never going to rise again. You see, worse than the Assyrian army, you say, what could be worse than that? Is this famine that's coming. This famine of the presence of God. There's only one other place in Scripture that I see this. And that's at the cross. And Jesus is nailed to the cross for your sins and my sins. The worst thing about the cross for Jesus was not the public humiliation, the public nakedness, the whippings, the crown of thorns, the mocking tribute of wearing a purple robe. It was not the soldiers cursing him It wasn't even the spikes going into his ankles and his wrists or the spear into his side. The worst moment is when a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, when the Son, for the first time in all eternity, couldn't hear from his Father. For you and me, he did that. Because you see, that's what we deserve. That's what we deserve because of our sin. That's what Israel got because of their sin. A famine of God's presence. Holy cow. It's brutal. There comes a point when we make decisions that will result in dire consequences. And when we finally wake up to it, we realize it's not a thing we can do. Some of you are saying, wait a minute, no, 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 no. I gave my life to Christ as a kid. I walked the aisle. I raised my hand. I prayed with so-and-so. I believe in eternal security. Well, great. I'm not talking about eternal security. I'm talking about discipline, God's wrath. We're God's people, right? If you're a believer here today, you're God's people. And God has a certain set of expectations for us to separate ourselves and how we live from those that we live amongst We are not to live like them. We are to witness to them. We are to share with them. Uh, No greater love is this than a man gives his life, right? For another. Love your enemy. Jesus says all those things. But don't live like them. You will experience the wrath of God. That's a powerful thing. The Israelites, they beg God, please don't leave us. God understood that once they saw the Assyrians at their gates, and they could hear the screaming, there might be some that would say, "God, Jehovah, I, f- I repent. Please forgive me." And God says, "You're not going to hear from me. You won't." And the harsh thing about this, from Amos's point of view, is that God goes dark, and He stays dark for the next seven hundred years. The next time anyone hears from God, it's the cry of a baby in a manger. Jesus goes to live in some backwater town called Nazareth. And not until he's 30 years old does he begin to preach repentance, preach how to get to God. And still the people rejected him. The church started Acts chapter 2. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of walking with him, but do not take it for granted. Do not live like our neighbors live. Be distinctive. Be that light in the darkness. Be that that bushel basket, right? Be the salt that flavors your community. No matter what it costs, obey the Father. Father, we thank you for your time this morning, for helping us to walk through this word. Father, it's amazing and scary. We pray, Lord, that as your people, we will be obedient. We will be obedient with every fiber of our being. We will not take for granted our relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for your grace.